Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you again this morning. I hope your personal reading of Philippines is going well. My daughter Jenny was struggling along the road yesterday with her three small children when a lady emerged from one of the houses and called after her. This lady had been touched by the message of radical hospitality, and she offered her help to Jenny, complete stranger to her, encouraged her to use her driveway for the car for easier access with the children to New Horizon. That's not an excuse, by the way, for everybody to park in the driveway. (laughs) But a simple act of kindness multiplied makes such a difference to be noticed, to be valued, to be offered help, radical hospitality. We left yesterday with Paul's appeal to the Philippines for unity and courage in a culture that was hostile both to the gospel and to those who brought it. So let's remind ourselves of those final statements as we read this morning from Philippians chapters 1 and 2. I'm going to start at verse 27 of chapter 1. Of course, in the original, there were no chapter and verse divisions, which is helpful because we get more of the flow of the text. So just watch out for how chapter 1 flows into chapter 2. Whatever happens, Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. Do not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him 
the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul then, at the end of chapter 1, is calling on them and on us to strive, to contend, to struggle side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's it's an athletic metaphor. Um, A lot of us here are keen on rugby. And maybe we keep that in mind this morning. We're being invited to get into the scrum together. Do you know those big guys standing arm in arm and all tightly together facing the opposition? That's the kind of idea here, although I'm not claiming that Paul invented rugby. But it's that kind of idea. It's of striving side by side. It's not a vision of a lonely battle, of the isolated individual, although sometimes that has to happen. But it's rather a getting together in this uh, battle, in this, in, this, in this game, although it's more serious than a game, standing together in the scrum. And what, what is it about? What is it over? It's, it's striving for the Faith of the gospel, that is the objective content, the truth of the gospel. In my student days last century, opposition to the gospel was largely with regard to Christianity's supernaturalism, the incarnation of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, the miracles, and Christianity's exclusivism regarding the uniqueness of Christ as the Lord and only Savior. That has now expanded, that opposition, more and more into the moral arena, and especially, as we know, into the areas of sexuality and gender issues. And all of this has swept like a tsunami into the church, frequently exposing a basic lack of knowledge of what the gospel is the objective truth of the gospel. 
And of course, hand in hand with a lack of knowledge of it comes a lack of confidence in it. We start to get shaky because we don't really know it. And we, we lose confidence in the objective truth of the gospel. And instead of striving side by side in the scrum facing the opposition, we're turned in at ourselves and bickering amongst ourselves and divided amongst ourselves and we're defenseless falling prey not only to the cultural pressures outside, but the influence of false teachers who don't even these days have to insinuate themselves into our churches. They're all over the place on YouTube. See, it's so easy in a Christian country, and many of us We had parents who were Christians, and I'm thankful for that, and grandparents who were believers, and I'm thankful for that. But it's so easy to have a theoretical belief that the Bible is the Word of God, but actually to largely ignore it, even in church, and thus fail to equip each emerging generation with what Paul describes as the whole counsel of God. So that the gospel ends up being assumed rather than assimilated and faced with the relentless anti-gospel pressure of our rapidly changing culture, we don't know what to say because we don't know what to believe. We don't know what we believe anymore. And for those of us now, the younger, growing up in this culture, the pressure is enormous. And the danger faces all of us of cultivating a persona in school, at university, in daily work, amongst our friends, on social media, that doesn't clearly state that our first loyalty is to Jesus Christ and his gospel. I think we need to get this up front and take the consequences. Even if people don't agree and reject us, at least let them be clear what they are rejecting. You see, the key difference between me and my friends who are not believers is this. I have a Lord. They don't. I do. I'm not free from Jesus' teaching about the sinfulness of the human heart just because it offends people. It offends people in Christ's day. I'm not free from his teaching about his uniqueness as the world's savior just because it is seen as narrow and exclusive. That's how it was seen in the first century. I am not free from his teaching about marriage and gender, although I will be misunderstood and misrepresented as having some psychological condition, which is what a phobia is, by the way. The pressure on our young people and increasingly on our children in primary school is going to build up. None of us likes to be mocked and ridiculed, either in school or on social media, to face the prospect of being unliked, is that the term, or unfriended because of our Christian faith. And opposition and hostility can be so unsettling, can blow us off course. 
We feel like we're on a wet Saturday morning in January. And we're a wee team from the country facing the might of some big Belfast school in a rugby game and we're 76 nil down. And it's only 10 minutes into the first half. <laughs> Listen, let me tell you, if I can put it reverently, Jesus is going to score the winning touchdown. Let us not be stampeded or fearful and cower away as if there were something to be embarrassed about in Jesus or his gospel. This is the greatest message on earth. So let Paul's words encourage us to stand together, arms linked, joyfully engaging in the battle. Paul encourages them to see the significance of the conflict, the significance of the opposition. You have been granted to suffer. Is that how we see it? It's a gift of God to us to have the opportunity to share with him in his practical sufferings, to know Jesus at this level. Not as some theory that Christ suffered for us, but now to experience some at least of what that was like to know our Savior there. It's been granted to us. It's a privilege. Not only that, it is a God-sent indication of our salvation. And on the other side of the judgment that one day is going to fall on those who oppose the Lord Jesus. The cross is at the center of our objective gospel. The cross is at the center of our Christian experience. This is what we're called to, but not grim and joyless. You know, I knew guys at school, I wasn't a great rugby player, but I knew guys who just loved it when it was muddy and wet. Do we love the mud, the strife, the challenge? Is there any encouragement? See how chapter 2 flows on from this call. What beautiful language we face here. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, but it's the if of a settled condition. It means since you have. Stop for a moment. Think about it. There is encouragement in being united with Christ. There is comfort from his love. There is a common sharing in the Spirit. There is tenderness and compassion both from him and from his family around us. It's not the total story that it's grim, relentless struggle and battle. These things are there for encouragement. They are really also part of our experience. So if they are, then allow those things to influence our unity with one another. Allow those to flow through us. It's how the grace of God works. Those who are forgiven much, love much. Allow this. 
Have you sensed comfort? Express comfort. Have you sensed consolation? Express consolation. Share in the Spirit together. Tenderness, compassion. The whole idea is those experiences we have, we share, we allow them to inform our relationship with one another so that we do nothing out of selfish ambition. Because that's not the way we think anymore. Our focus is not on our self. So Paul is appealing to us to unity of mind and heart and affection, to renounce selfish ambition and self-glorification, to humble and sincere regard for others as more important than ourselves. He calls us away from selfish focus on our own interests to unselfish concern for the interests and work of others. And this is one of those parts in the letter where you go for a moment, "Uh aha, there's obviously an issue here. In their partnership for the gospel, in their contending together, there's some issues that are affecting team spirit. And these are they. There's a guy there who thinks he's indispensable on the team. He's the biggest guy and the rest, well, he might as well not be here. Egos begin to surface. Disharmony, selfish pursuits dominating, causing hurt and division. And later, Paul in chapter 4 is going to address directly one major relational breakdown and even name the individual's concern. But first, he wants to deal with it generally, and he wants us to focus now for a moment again away. Because this is the world we live in, isn't it? of egos, of hurt feelings, of envy and jealousy. What do we do? Where do we get the resource from to be different, to cultivate a different culture in our groups, in our churches, in our Christian communities? We get it by looking away to Jesus. Have this mind in you. So we're focusing particularly on the mindset of Christ. It's so important for us to see what this description of the Lord Jesus is doing here. So often it's taken out of its context and is used as the basis maybe for a prayer service. I have no difficulty with that because what is said here is true in its own right and we can do that and it's glorious. The language is wonderful. But what is it doing here? The whole point of pointing away to the mindset of Christ is so that we adopt that model, that mindset in our relationships with each other so that we can effectively partner in the gospel. Because how would the Philippians effectively partner in the gospel if their attitudes towards one another and their behavior towards one another actually denied the gospel they professed to believe? 
That's what it's doing here. The mindset of Christ. Let's look at it for a moment. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped onto other translations have. Rather, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We could never spend too much time thinking about these words. We need to be clear what Paul means and what he doesn't mean when he writes that Jesus made himself nothing or that he emptied himself. Jesus is in very nature God. He always was God. He always will be. He did not cease to be God, become a servant, and then become God again. He never ceased being who he is. He emptied himself, not of the attributes of God, but he emptied himself in the sense of giving up his rights to be on equal status with the Father. He took the form of a servant. He made himself nothing. So what we have here is a description of God never ceasing to be God, becoming a man, and as a man, a slave. So the mind, the mindset, the attitude that we are considering here, when Paul says, your mind, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, this is in fact the mind of God. In Isaiah 45 God declares that one day every knee shall bow to him and confess that in him alone is righteousness and strength. And here Paul refers to that and fills it out in the light of the coming of Christ. God has exalted Jesus, has ordained that at his name, Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That doesn't mean that everyone will trust him or love him, but it means that the entire universe one day will be compelled by obvious reality to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, that in him alone is righteousness and strength. And if we were to ask this morning, what kind of God is this? What kind of God is it before whom every knee will bow? Is he the self-centered despot, the megalomaniac, so characterized by Richard Dawkins and his tribe? Oh no. He's the one who humbled himself. The one who did not demand his rights. The one who became a slave. The one who was obedient to death, even death on the cross. When we see the mind of Christ, we see the mind of God. And Paul here takes them and us to the cross, not 
now to focus on penal substitution and Christ's death as a sacrifice for our sin, but on the mindset that led him there. The cross was not a piece of jewelry. It was a place of execution. It was a scandal. It was a shame. Jesus was obedient to death, even, even death on a cross. And if we would follow him, it will involve carrying a cross, putting an X over yourself. What does that do to self? I used to be a school teacher. And back in the days when you were allowed to do this, I don't know if you're allowed to do it anymore, but I'd use my red pen occasionally. And you know, sometimes when I was correcting some French homework, I would just add in a few little words and underline a few things to try to be helpful. There were occasions, I have to confess, that I ended up just taking my red pen and going... (coughs) (coughs) An X over it. A cross over self, self on the cross, saying no to self so that we can follow Jesus. It's easy, you see, or certainly easier, to have a theoretical belief in the substitutionary atonement of Christ and have little room for the cross in our lives. Have this mindset in you, the mindset of the voluntary slave prepared to leave aside his or her rights. That's the mindset that Paul had when he came to Philippi. One of the issues was his attitude to his own rights as a Roman citizen. He had civil rights as a Roman citizen that others, including Peter, didn't have. And yet in Philippi, Paul effectively made himself of no reputation. He didn't claim his citizenship until he had suffered, which is exactly the same as the Lord Jesus. Paul didn't insist on being treated as a Roman citizen, even though he was one. He put the advance of the gospel first. Just imagine this letter now has been read out in the church in Philippi, and the jailer is sitting there listening in. And he would put the, the, join the dots together. He said, that is exactly what Paul did when he came here. He had the mind of Christ. If he had insisted on his rights at the wrong time, he would never have got into the jail. His primary concern was not himself, his rights, It was furthering the gospel, representing Jesus well. But then, interestingly, he did call attention to his rights. You read the story in Acts. Because he hadn't broken the law, the magistrates had. And he didn't want any lingering accusation or slander falling on the Christians and on the gospel. So he wasn't prepared in Philippi to slip quietly out the back door. Rather, he actually insisted that the magistrates who had illegally thrown him into prison, had him beaten, came in person and escorted him out. That must have been an interesting day. (laughs) Such fun. Demonstrating publicly that the gospel in Philippi was not under a cloud. 
that Paul hadn't been devious. And of course, at the time he was writing this letter, he was under arrest because he had appealed to Caesar using his Roman rights. So it's not as simple when we think of our rights these days as citizens. It's just not a simple matter of, of concluding that our rights don't matter. It's thinking it through. And thinking it through in terms of how that impacts the advance of the gospel, not how that affects my own personal comfort. But when it comes to the Christian community, there's no rights talk. Our interaction is to be characterized by the mindset of Christ. We are people of the cross. The self-giving of the Son of God for us is what is to characterize our Christian communities. I think that's easily forgotten. We preach often a theoretically correct gospel and we live the exact opposite in church. What's the world meant to do with that? So how are we doing? And when I think of the way that I can hold on to real or imagined hurts and cling to things that bring distance between brothers and sisters, And I think how we can insist on our rights when I've watched believers bully and manipulate and insist on their agendas and then we see Jesus. Don't you feel like hiding with embarrassment? The Lord Jesus walked in on some of our elders' meetings or some of our fellowship tea discussions. How would we feel? The voluntary slave, the self-giving of himself, and listen to us as we preen and prance and vaunt and pursue our personal agendas. It applies across the church. It also applies to leadership. Jesus said very little directly about leadership, and there's probably a very good reason for that. But on those occasions when he did speak about it, he tended to start by telling us what it's not like. (laughs) That's a healthy emphasis. He pointed to the leadership concept in vogue at the time, how the great and good of his day liked to lord it over people. They loved that feeling of sitting on their thrones and being benefactors to everyone. That was the model of leadership of the day. It's not like that. And as we fight and tussle over the title that we're called and uh, doing me disrespect and I, I am among you, he said to his disciples, as one who says, can you imagine he's just explained the significance of his death. They have just taken the Lord's Supper for the first time and a dispute arose as to who was to be the greatest. 
Wow. Do you like going to a restaurant for a meal? You do? I do too, confess. And part of it, of course, is, let's, let's be honest, it's that lovely feeling of, good evening, sir. Let me show you to your table. Oh, I don't get that at home. <laughs> and you know what happens in, in some restaurants I've been to? There's a little napkin sitting there. And would you believe, they take the napkin, they unfold it for you, and they put it on your lap. I definitely don't get that at home. Would you like something to drink? Here's a glass of water. No, it's... And a menu. And you get to choose. Oh, wouldn't church be wonderful if you got to choose? Don't like him, don't like him, don't like her. Don't, don't, don't. I'll have that speaker. Please press your button. Up comes the YouTube video and I can watch the guy I want to watch. Wow, the music. Stuart Tynan always so last year. Those Getty songs, oh man, do my head out. I just want Rosaria on repeat. We love that. We love it in a restaurant and there's no dishes afterwards. What would you think? You're sitting there at a table enjoying your meal and that lovely feeling of being there. And the person approaches you, the towel over his arm, how can I serve you? And you look up and it's Jesus. Would you not feel like getting up and bowing at his feet? Giving up your seat and your privilege and your clinging on to your own rights? Which is greater, he said, the one who sits at table or the one who says, of course, in the world's concept, it's the one who sits at table. I am among you as the one who serves. And Peter learned well. He writes to the elders, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. Examples of what? Examples of Jesus. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger. Oh, there's a message for the young, vibrant Be subject to the elders, not what they want to hear. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. He may not exalt you here. Oh, we want the pat on the back. And it's great there are people who encourage, but he may not exalt you here. But one day, it's the cross before the crown. And it's so deeply countercultural 
the displacement of self, its preferences, its ambitions in a culture that is more and more characterized by the enthronement of the self, where the highest good is individual freedom, the freedom to define myself, to express myself, and anything that restricts or threatens my individual freedom must be challenged, it must change to fall in line with my feelings, or it must be removed completely. It's so powerful and all pervasive that we scarcely even notice it as it creeps into the church. And it turns us into feeling-centered, my rights-orientated consumers. How refreshingly and challengingly different is the mindset of Christ. A community adopting this mindset. This is a plural letter. It's written to a church. Just imagine as you partner in the gospel, in the mindset of Christ. What a difference that makes. As you have always obeyed, Paul continues, keep going that way. So whether I get back and see you or end my days in prison, you are continuing to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Working out your salvation doesn't mean that you're trying to do your best to figure out how to be saved. Hello, if you need to, please do. The idea here is, as the sentence continues, it is God who works in you. And he works not only on the doing, but the willing. He works in the area of our desire as well as in the area of our doing. God does that. Which God? Some little privatized personal deity? No. The God at whose name every knee will bow. The God we've just been reading about. It's this God at work in us. He's already begun a good work on us. He is still working. We are to work out what God works in. No wonder, Paul says, with fear and trembling. Because God is at work. When God revealed himself in the Old Testament, people had to be hidden. The mountains shook as the holy and infinite intersected with human history. It's this God who is at work in us. It's it's just, it's stunning even to say it. I don't think Paul means that we are to go about shaking in our shoes, but there is to be a, a reverencing of God, a fear of God where we tremble in humility at his presence where the thought of playing around with sin and sinful desire becomes unthinkable to us. And as God begins to renovate the inside, to reset our damaged consciences, to renew 
our damaged thinking, to reset our wrong values. As he does that by his spirit through his word, he wants us to work that salvation out into our daily living. We may not feel like it. I love what Paul says. God's prepared to work in the willing. And there's part of us that's always going to rebel. But God is prepared to work on the willing, our motivation, our desires, our thinking and mindset so that we begin to want to do his will and he provides the spiritual resource we need. Salvation is a complete process. It is transformational. The purpose is to make us like Christ, not necessarily make us comfortable or successful, or even, dare I say it, happy. How sad it is I've found to listen to parents talking to their children. And their children have decided to choose a way that is not glorifying to God, Christian parents saying to them, well, son, I just want you to be happy. Oh, 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 oh. We need to think this through. Salvation is transformational. It could lead and does lead to a lifetime's struggle. You don't have to have an addiction to struggle. We will be struggling against sin and various forms until the Lord comes back. Hopefully we get better at it. (laughs) We experience more of his grace. But it is a struggle. As John Bunyan, I think, put it, it's uphill and all the way. (laughs) Uphill and all the way. But Christ is in us. Where are we to work this out? As I finish, two minutes. Wonderful, two minutes, great. Well, it's not just in the church. It's in the world, in the culture, in the society around us. We are to shine like stars. You ever want to be a star? I'm talking about being a YouTube sensation. It's not stars in the sense of outstanding ability, although it's great if God has gifted you with outstanding ability, but it's in the sense of function. We are to do what stars do, and that is to shine clearly in a dark sky. Why is it so important? Well, because in the days before GPS, stars were key to navigation, and I suspect this is probably what Paul had in mind a guidance system. We have the opportunity as followers of Jesus that the darker the night gets, the brighter the star becomes. The opportunity to provide an alternative 
guidance system. If not to the culture around us. And I think as Christians, perhaps sometimes we need to ease back on the transforming culture talk. But life and life, a guidance system to the stranger, that interruption on your road, that person who enters your life, a guidance system, a guidance system to your family, your extended family, a guidance system to your work colleagues. What an opportunity. Do we embrace it? We do it in two ways. We do it by our mindset, the mindset of Christ. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Do you know, I have never seen a church with that outside the front door. You know the way they put signs. But I wonder, would it be helpful? Do everything without complaining or arguing. But he's not talking about how we behave in church. He's talking about how we behave in society. I used to be a teacher, and therefore I can only speak from that experience, but it did trouble me on occasions how often Christians bring their complaints out into the public arena and talk as if they didn't believe anymore in the sovereignty of God. And God somehow had let them down And because the church won't listen to them, then they bend the ear of a friend and tell them all the terrible things that are going on in the church. That's really helpful for sharing the gospel. Really, you know, is it? Is it? How easy talk with colleagues can turn to all kinds of negative stuff. And no wonder then people are not asking us for a reason for the hope that we have because they don't think we have any. Because our lives are hopeless. We're miserable. We're grim-faced. We're always complaining and arguing. How are Christians noted in your community? Just, just answer the question for yourselves. Talk about it among yourselves over lunch. By our behavior, and secondly, finally, by holding out the word of life. If all we ever do is what we call the kingdom works, it will have virtually zero impact on the people around us. They need the words. Picture, you may say, tells, is worth more than a thousand words. But what words? When you look at a picture, you're often not sure. What are the words that are meant to go with this picture? The people look at your good behavior. You don't complain, you argue. There's a sense of hope and peace and so on. And what do they hear? What words explain this picture? Make sure we know the words. We hold out the word of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. It is the word of life. It energizes. It inspires us. It renews us. 
Forgive us when we downplay it in our personal life, in our churches, where we feel we know better than you what's going to excite and inspire and feed and challenge and comfort and encourage. May we be those who exhibit the mindset of Christ and hold out to everyone your magnificent word of life. To the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.